the revelation of John, the very last book of the Bible, very vivid book uh, full of uh, images because it mainly comprises a series of visions that uh, John had and we're going to read about the first vision that he had from chapter 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were, bla were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Lord, as we go about our daily lives, we so often forget the spiritual realities which... Uh, actually govern this universe. So, Lord, it is an enormous privilege to uh, uh, study a vision such as this, which, which draws back the curtain just a little. We pray that you would help us to understand what you would say, not only to those seven churches then, what would you would say to us as your church meeting locally here? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You remember the story of Cinderella? It's a very romantic uh, story. There's a poor girl who has fallen on hard times. She's the only daughter of her father, but her father has remarried, and now she has to share the house with those two ugly older stepsisters. Once she was honoured, she was the, a treasured jewel of the household, but now she's treated as the, the lowest member of the family. Of course, the ugly sisters go to the ball, don't they, in order to catch the eye of the handsome prince, but poor old Cinders has to stay at home. Just as uh, Cinderella is uh, bemoaning her lot, though, 
fairy godmother appears and announces, you shall go to the ball. And uh, the rest is fairy tale history, isn't it? And actually, many people today think that the church is a bit of a Cinderella organization. Perhaps there was a time, they say, in the dim and distant past when she was uh, honoured in Britain as the only true daughter of God, but now she has to accept that she lives in a different, rougher world with many other stepsisters of all religions and none, each of whom has an equal right to claim to live in the father's household. I mean, we may concede that uh, uh, she is the most beautiful, with her dainty little feet of Christian faith and morality. But in the end, we have to accept that uh, the church is a Cinderella. She's had her day. It's the stepsisters who are having a ball, while Cinderella sits by the fire and imagines, imagines what might have been. And oh, by the way, Cinderella church, just in case you were glancing a little hopefully at that pumpkin in the corner, There is no fairy godmother. Of course, actually, the church has been marginalized like that in society before. It's nothing new. Uh, Indeed, from a New Testament point of view, the idea that the church could be at the center of the life uh, of a nation is the novelty, not the idea that the church might be marginalized. In fact, in the Roman Empire of the first century, there was a a policy that ensured that Christianity remained marginal. Religions were permitted in the Roman world, but only as long as the worshippers were prepared to accept that they had a higher allegiance to the emperor of Rome, to Caesar. And in the Roman world, actually, only Jews and Christians refused to accept this. They said very boldly that their sole allegiance must be to God and to him alone. So they were treated with deep suspicion and occasionally with outbursts of uh, of vicious venom. Actually, Christians were called um, atheists because they didn't believe in all those gods of the Roman Empire. The Romans were completely taken aback by this and thought that they were a horror needed to be exterminated. So by the time that this book, Revelation, was being written, they had been living with uh, that situation for uh, nearly a lifetime. And different churches had had slightly different experiences, but all of them had had to adapt to this Cinderella lifestyle. Actually, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation comprise the seven letters that uh, John was told to write down. And we're not going to have a chance to uh, study them in this series. They're they're worthy of a study in themselves. But uh, these churches were in many ways typical churches. They were scattered around the province uh, of Asia, which is our modern-day Turkey. And uh, they show an example of a variety of different types of church life. But one thing all those churches have in common, they're all in trouble. And some of the churches just kept their head down, they plodded on, but without any real spiritual life in their midst, like Ephesus, 
or uh, some actually just snoozed quietly like uh, Sardis. Some opted to uh, compromise with uh, the pagan practice of their, their practices of their day so that they just didn't stand out too much from the crowd. Examples of that are Pergamum and Thyatira. Some uh, pursued in a, in a very modern way, it seems, health, wealth, and prosperity. They decided that uh, 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 they would make themselves rich. They congratulated themselves on their riches, but actually they, they are told they are utterly useless. That's the church of Laodicea. And just a few of these marginalized churches remain resolutely faithful to God. But when they did that, they found themselves facing frightening opposition and sensing very deeply their weakness. The two churches like that are Smyrna and Philadelphia. You know, as Cinderella would tell you, it is not easy being an underdog. Now today in the church, we don't face that sort of overt and frightening opposition that the churches in Asia faced in their day. But we do face very similar pressures and temptations. The temptation is always either to accommodate to the prevailing opinions of the day or to keep our heads down and try and just practice our faith quietly without anyone noticing but without any real life or in standing up to be counted as people who stand for the one true God and facing real opposition. As I look at the church in the Western world, I have to say that I see a church that is all, all too often in the same sort of bondage that the churches in Asia were. Very often we are in bondage to a, a, a lax morality which just seems to follow the standards of this world. You know, I was hearing this week that uh, there are parts of America where uh, pastors just cannot teach what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage. Because uh, in these evangelical churches, there has been such a culture of casual divorce and remarriage that uh, if they start teaching uh, uh, a biblical, balanced view of such things, they are drummed out of the church. Evangelical churches. And that sort of thing just doesn't, doesn't happen just uh, uh, in America. Some churches uh, are in bondage to what uh, uh, can only be called a sort of introverted, opium-like spirituality. They are obsessed with their own private, personal experience, but in such a way that it just, just anesthetizes them to being useful at all in the world. Some churches uh, uh, as well find that uh, when they do stick their heads above the parapet, they, they face such frightening opposition and they feel so overwhelmed that they just live in perpetual fear. In any way, as a Cinderella organization with no fairy godmother to rescue us, Many churches reason, surely we just need to keep uh, on good terms with, the, uh, with the, the other sisters, ugly though they may be, because that's the only way we might get a chance to go to the ball. I want to tell you this morning from this passage that there, we don't need a fairy godmother. 
We don't need one. We don't need an invitation to the ball because actually there isn't a Prince Charming worth losing your slipper for at the ball. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace is here now already. He is the bridegroom to the faithful bride. That's what we are being told. That's what these struggling churches in Asia are being told. He is already with us. We do not need to fear, but we must not compromise. Look at what John says. First of all, John says to us very clearly that the church has the voice of Jesus in its midst. Verse 10, on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. This is the voice of God. Now, when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the law, there was a loud trumpet. When God spoke to the prophet Ezekiel, he put him into a state of, of rapture in the spirit. When God spoke to Moses, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, he told all three of those great prophets of Old Testament times to write down what they had heard and seen. Just as he says here in, right, in verse 11, write on a scroll what you see. As God spoke to his people in Old Testament times, so too, says John, he speaks today to his church. And he is absolutely specific about the things that he wants to say. God doesn't deal in platitudes. He does not simply make broad, fine-sounding statements which, which roll off the tongue nicely but have very little content. God says here to John that he has specific things to say to seven specific churches. And when you read what he has to say in chapters 2 and 3, the letter's actually re revealed that he is, he is uh, acutely sensitive to the detailed history of each town and each church that he's writing to. He is even mindful of every individual member of each church. The same voice that spoke the Ten Commandments to Moses, the same voice that spoke to great prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, says John speaks specifically to real churches in history and real individuals. You know, there is always a massive pressure for, church, for, for Christians to listen to another voice. The voice that says, don't rock the boat. The voice that says, remember, you're a poor church and you can't do much. The voice, that, the voice that says, you can't really make much of a difference. The voice that says, how can you expect to be united as a multicultural church when the world outside is divided? A voice that says, you should keep your faith quiet and just keep your head down. A voice that says, a bit of sin in the church just proves that you're human. To our shame, we so often listen to those clamoring voices of the world outside and to the voice of God, the voice of Jesus. I wonder what he wants to say to you this morning. 
I can guarantee it will be absolutely specific. I can guarantee that it will relate to your particular history. And he wants to relate his truth to you and to us as a church. I wonder what he wants to say. I wonder whether he wants to rebuke us. We haven't listened to him as we should. I wonder whether he has words of comfort because we feel that our confidence is failing or we feel overwhelmed by fear and despondency. I wonder whether he wants to warn us that we are deluding ourselves like some of the churches of of his day, thinking we're spiritually fine when really we are very near the abyss. I wonder whether he wants to warn us that sin in our lives is a habit that can so easily catch up on us from behind and suddenly overwhelm us. So that once what we thought was just a, a minor peccadillo becomes fatal to our faith. One thing is for absolute certain. Jesus knows us and intends to speak to us words that are absolutely specific to us. Church uh, may, in the eyes of the world, be an underdog, but the church has unique access to God's word. Jesus speaks to us. More than that, though, the church says uh, 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 John, or John learns, has the very presence of Christ too in its midst. John turns around to, uh, to see the source of this voice. Actually, the first thing he sees are lampstands. Do you see that? I turned around, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We told in verse 20 that the lampstands are, are uh, images for the churches. In the Old Testament, there was one lampstand near the place where God dwelt in the temple. Uh, and uh, it, it shed light at night, signifying the light that God sheds on the world. But now, says Jesus... Every church is a lampstand. Every church stands in the presence of God. Every church is precious, made of gold. Every church is supposed to shed light abroad in the darkness. But then uh, uh, from the lampstands, John's eye moves to something else. A man, verse 13, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. This son of man figure was seen by the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. He was an extraordinarily powerful and yet human person. And then, of course, you remember Jesus described himself as the son of man. John has seen Jesus. And he is dressed like a a royal high priest, Old Testament priests uh, uh, maintained the lampstand. They trimmed its wick. They replenished its oil. They made sure it burned brightly. And here is Jesus amongst the lampstands, busying himself with the same job. Do you see? Trimming, replenishing, maintaining. 
But he's more than just a great priest. No, he has the authority of God. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow. He says, when actually Daniel saw this one like a son of man, he also saw God the Father. And it was he, the Ancient of Days, as he calls him, who is described as having hair white like wool. But now Jesus has that uh, uh, seniority, that authoritative status conferred on himself. And his eyes blaze like fire, it says, because he sees all and he will judge all. His feet are bronze, glowing in a furnace, because he is utterly pure like metal from the smelter. And his voice is like the sound of a mighty waterfall or the great crashing breakers in an an Atlantic storm, because his voice has all the power of nature that we could ever imagine summed up in itself. And his face shines like the sun because, as we learned with the eclipse, uh, to look at the sun is to be dazzled. So to look at Jesus in all his glory is to be utterly dazzled and have to turn away. From his mouth, says John, comes a double-edged sword because his word itself has the power of the largest weapon that a man could hold and the surgical precision of the sharpest scalpel. And what is this extraordinary figure doing? Oh, he is tending the lampstands, and he is holding seven stars in his hand. We're told in verse 20 that uh, the seven stars are the angels of the churches, the, the spiritual representatives in the spiritual realm of the churches. He's saying he owns He controls every church at its deepest level and he cares for them personally. As we gather together as a church, no matter how big or how small, we are in the presence of Jesus. We are in the presence of this Jesus. This Jesus whose whose eyes see absolutely everything that goes on, both amongst us and in our hearts. This Jesus whose whose pure, red-hot feet walk about amongst us, burning the dross that they tread on. This this Jesus whose, whose voice is so thunderous. That uh, uh, like uh, if you've been to the Niagara Falls and have experienced that, that overwhelming weight of sound, it just drains out every, drowns out every other sound that could ever come to our ears if only we could hear him. His words to those who listen says John, are as powerful and surgically effective as the most terrible laser-guided missile. And he stands amongst us this morning. We have his voice. If we are Christians, we have access to his personal voice. We have his presence, this great and mighty and authoritative and glorious 
person personally is ministering amongst us. You know, Cinderella might get kicked around a bit in the world. But the church is not really a Cinderella from God's perspective. She is the most precious bride. The most precious thing that Jesus owns. And Jesus himself says, listen to me. Respond to me. Obey me. Now, he's going in in chapters 2 and 3 to speak to uh, uh, discouraged Christians. And he's going to say, how can you be discouraged when I hold the seven stars of the churches in my hand? He's going to speak to sinning Christians. And he's going to say to them, how can you sin when you stand before him whose eyes are blazing fire and out of whose mouth comes a double-edged sword? He's going to speak to compromised Christians. And he's going to say, how can you be so focused on the passing things of this world when I am the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth for all eternity? He's even going to say to some churches, I am about to remove your lampstand. He does tend and care for and maintain his churches, but if they they, uh, forever fail, if they turn away from him, if they refuse his ministry, then he is quite prepared to snuff them out and to melt down the gold of the lampstand and refashion another one. Listen to this Jesus. Listen to him. He is here with us. Our future depends not on outside forces, not on the mood of society, not on whether we're particularly a respected group in society, but on Jesus. Your future as an individual depends not on on your academic qualifications, not on your ability to find a good job, not on your native wit, not on your pension plan, not, not on the skill of the medical profession to look after your body, but it depends on he who has hair white like wool and rules all things. For good or ill, Christians live in the presence of Jesus. The church has his presence. And John tells us also, and he learns for himself, that the church has his protection too. I think if we really engaged with, uh, with what John saw, we won't be at all surprised how he responded. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Do you see, he doesn't want to shock the life out of us. He wants to shock some life into us. 
He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He personally lifts us up. And he says, don't be afraid, I am eternal. He says, in fact, I am the only person in all eternity whose essence is life itself. I am the living one. Human beings have life because God breathes the breath of life into us. But he has life in himself. He is life. And he showed that by, uh, by his death on the cross. When he died on the cross, death itself could not hold him. He was dead. But now he is alive. And he has defeated the great, two greatest forces which could ever stand against human beings. Death itself and the devil who controls that dark underworld called hell or Hades, as he puts it here. He holds the key to them. Though we die, yet he can unlock that door and bring us back to life. Though rightly we should be condemned, and the devil knows that, he can unlock that door of our condemnation and freely give us forgiveness by his death on the cross. He has broken their power. So do not fear, he says. Why should John fear? Well, in a sense, he should fear if he rejects Jesus. There's no hope for those who reject Jesus or who play with him as if Christianity was all a bit of a, a frivolity or give him half-hearted allegiance but really still live for this world. There is every reason to fear him then. But for those who have seen Christ, those who have heard his voice, for those who have truly responded to him, though they may be shaken by the awesomeness of his personality, they need not fear. As we fall, he puts his hand upon each one of us and he raises us up and he says, do not be afraid. How do you think you need to respond this morning to that? As Christ speaks to us, as we become aware that Christ is present with us, as Christ assures us of his protection, how do you need to respond? You know, it may be that we're aware of some dangerous failing that we have. Jesus has seen it. Jesus would warn us of it. Jesus would speak to us about it. Will you respond to him? Maybe that you have felt that your faith has, has, has lapsed into almost nothing over the years. You've lost any sense of the awesomeness of what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. Well, now we have seen it, haven't we? Will you respond?
It may be that you're aware that you never have really come to terms with Jesus. Yes, you know something about him. Yes, you have some sort of sympathy with the church. But never have you, have you heard his voice in that way. Never have you sensed his majestic power and authority and the, the, the awesomeness of his person. Never have you been struck down in that way that says, Lord, I fear you. And then felt his hand upon you that says, do not be afraid. You are sensing that for the first time this morning. And Jesus says to you, trust me, follow me, put your faith in me. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I hold the keys to death and Hades. There is nothing that you need fear if you belong to me. Now throughout the, uh, the book of Revelation, we are going to see that from the world's perspective, Christians are always like Cinderella. Always. Always marginalized, always reviled, always opposed, always the underdog. Perhaps secretly respected but never overtly. But you see, for 2,000 years now, Christianity has been the most enduring, most global, most powerful force in human history. Because despite the fact that she has a Cinderella status in the world, she has Jesus Christ ministering amongst her, in her midst, Though individual churches may fail and fall, he will never fail. And those churches that are faithful to him will not be disappointed. See, Cinderella's got a secret. She's already married to the prince. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Lord Jesus Christ, as we hear those words, We see now with uh, clarity the foolishness of ignoring you, the folly of playing around with Christian faith, and the great glory and privilege of belonging to you. Help us to respond to your voice, we pray, Lord. And speak to us in our hearts words that we need to hear. 
for Christ's sake. Amen.